Hello, Martin. Hi. I'm trying to get a boarding pass. It doesn't work. <laughs> they don't want me to get on this plane. And the British Airways has collapsed, as far as I can see. Well, we have a neat segue from the collapse of the British Airways online booking system to the collapse of democratic capitalism. <laughs> okay. Um, let's go. Hello, I'm Jonathan Derbyshire, the FT's Executive Opinion Editor, and welcome to this final bonus edition of Saving Democratic Capitalism. This podcast series really belongs, of course, to Martin Wolf, the FT's Distinguished Economics Commentator. But Martin began the series by inviting me to interview him about why he's worried about the decline of democracy around the world. And that's how we're ending the series too. Martin is here with me now. Martin, during this series, you've had various conversations with thinkers you admire about this question of the future of democracy. What insights have you gained from those conversations? I suppose the first and most obvious point is they're at least as worried as I am. People with very different perspectives who particularly are focused on the political side of it all, on democracy as a political system with Larry Diamond, on the role of autocracies in undermining open societies as Anne Applebaum is, and of course Hillary Clinton as a politician who came up against these new populist forces and was overwhelmed by them. But the worry is clearly there. I think the sense of being embattled is clearly there. And there are some very dangerous, immediate risks, including, quite obviously, the next presidential election, given what's going on in the courts right now. And that, of course, does raise the profound question, do we have the time to fix this? This series, of course, was inspired by your recent book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, and you are as interested in the future of the market economy and the social contract that that market economy underpins as you are in the future of the institutions of liberal democracy. You identify in the book economic problems as among the, some of the principal causes of this decline in democracy around the world, what Larry Diamond calls the democratic recession, factors such as income inequality, the loss of manufacturing jobs, or financial instability. But each of your guests seems to view social, cultural, or technological factors as at least as important, if not more so. But do you still stand by your original diagnosis of the problem? Yes, I think, as always in these things, it's very hard to separate causal factors from symptoms. And there is a tendency, of course, among economists, this really goes back to Karl Marx, to think the material conditions, as it were, technology and material life, determine the way societies organize and even the way societies think. And like most economists, I tend to think that's quite deeply true. People who focus on political life naturally tend to think of it the other way around, that political and cultural life has an autonomy and somehow economic forces may come out of it. But my own view is that at least two elements are pretty obviously to do with economics. So I start off my book from an analytical point of view with the question, why in the 19th and 20th centuries 
did democracy become the more or less universal form of government in sophisticated societies? And my argument there is because the entire basis of the economy changed. It wouldn't have happened if our states had remained peasant societies or servile societies. That seems to me to support the proposition economics really matters. And then when you look at the history, and there's lots of literature going back to the 19th century and so forth, it's obvious that economics changes politics and culture, financial crises, cause political instability. So I remain convinced that it's a huge, and from the point of view of these sorts of commentators, underrated causal factor. So just to remind listeners, the book argues for a symbiotic relationship between market capitalism and liberal democracy. The openness of the economy goes hand in hand with the openness of democratic institutions. Anne Applebaum, your second guest, emphasized the role of the internet and social media in undermining the public sphere, and with it, the dialogue and deliberation that underpins liberal democracy. How persuasive do you find that analysis? I think it's a very important point. Profit-motivated, independent media businesses have always played a profound role in the evolution of democracy, both its nature and type. You couldn't imagine 19th century democracy without the newspaper. It allowed people to know what was going on on a daily basis. The difficulty in knowing about social media is exactly how transformative they are compared with all these predecessors. I do think they're transformative in important respects because they allow peer-to-peer relationships in a way that previous media didn't. And they make fact-checking, objectivity, and so forth really difficult. And they clearly have allowed foreign actors to interfere in very obvious ways. And I think Anne's arguments persuade me that it's probably even more worrying than I thought. And there's a connection here, isn't there, with Hillary Clinton's contention that a large part of our current predicament is what we might call privilege or the reluctance of people to have their beliefs and opinions challenged, even if that means flying in the face of evidence or expert opinion. Yes, and I would argue that this is in a significant measure true on both sides. Obviously, the right conservative reactionary cultural politics are more obvious and I think more immediately threatening, but it's pretty obvious that part of what's going on in pushing the middle classes away from the centre-left is quasi-religious beliefs about personal identity and so forth. So we have passionate identity and cultural forces in our societies which are shaping our politics. And for a society to be democratic, you have to regard the loss of an election as something you can live with. You have to believe that the people to whom you lose are decent people whose values you respect. Now, if you have profound disagreements on core value questions, then, of course, that form of trust is likely to erode, if not collapse totally, and then the democratic system won't work. And if we are to fix this, we have to agree on and share a politics which puts identity issues so far as is possible to one side. This brings us neatly to the question of 
your prescriptions for tackling the crisis of democratic capitalism that you've just described. You wrote recently for the FT, for example, Martin, about the importance of citizens' juries or assemblies. Could you explain what these are and why you think they might help to revive our ailing polities? We inherited a form of democratic politics which emerged in Britain out of medieval politics. In the 13th century, the monarch found it necessary to call a parliament. And these parliaments were representative of powerful groups within society. And this idea of representation then became the core basis of the way democracy worked in this country over time and all the other countries that were influenced by it. And this is perfectly valid. You can see the sense the representatives are expert, they're trusted by the people who elect them, they can come and actually debate within a chamber. And that was the basis on which we created our modern democracies. We just widened the franchise, but kept this structure. But it's pretty obvious over time that there are a couple of problems with this. One, that the representatives are not themselves very representative. They're very different sort of people from most people. Second, they become professional politicians, which is definitely a different sort of person from most people. And third, over time, people have got very, very good in influencing people's moods and motivations through dog whistles, through slogans to make people feel emotional, angry, not consider the issues, but to be carried away in making not very carefully considered decisions. So the question is, can you add another element? Well, there are two possibilities. Referendums are one. They're not invalid if they're done well and carefully. But the other is to have actually a different form of representation, which the Greeks had, which is to select people by lot for a parliament. And we do that with juries already. And it provides legitimacy, in my view, in a profound way to our judicial system. And the idea that I put forward is, why not use that as well? We could do it technically now. We could bring people together. We could even have people online to do this. And they would be ordinary people selected randomly, a cross-section of the public. They could use whatever experts they wanted to inform them. They could debate some central issues and produce a completely different sort of approach And this, I think, could balance the Constitution and could operate alongside the representative system we have. What you say about the nature and quality of our representatives, our politicians in other words, brings me neatly to my next question. Now, you start your book, and we began this series, by talking about your parents, who fled the Nazis as refugees from Austria and the Netherlands respectively. How much of what we're seeing today, how much of our predicament is due to the emergence of a generation of political leaders with no experience of full-time conflict and therefore little sense of the essential fragility of human institutions? I think this is a very important question. I had a very dear friend, he was a Czech refugee, and he told me on more than one occasion, and I've repeated this in my work, You know, Martin, it's not true that we don't learn from history. We do, and then we forget. 
And this linked with something that I thought during the financial crisis, which was roughly 80 years after the Great Depression. And I was sort of made me think, we don't repeat the mistakes of our parents. We repeat the mistakes of our grandparents because they're so remote. So it is a matter of concern to me that what was a very live reality in my life, because I was born immediately after the Second World War, and people who were born in the 10, 15 years after the Second World War were very aware of it and the immense costs and the risk that it would go wrong and all the rest of it, and the imperative of learning from that, that that awareness erodes because people just get used to what, in all truth, has been a golden age. In the West, since the Second World War, this has been a long period of peace and stability, which is extraordinary. The last such period really was the 19th century, and of course, we're much richer. And they just take it for granted that nothing can go wrong, and that makes politics a game. It might lead you to put your trust in people who are so fundamentally irresponsible that they will blow the thing up. And I've begun to worry that that's a risk now. Do you see any sign that we in the world's mature democracies are beginning to relearn then any of the lessons your parents taught you, the self-described child of catastrophe, as you put it in the book? Well, I think that is a live question. Uh, I would say... Let's just focus on Britain and America because they're so close to the heart of what I've been concerned about and they're so important, though I think the issue arises elsewhere. I think people are beginning to realize maybe a politician like Boris Johnson is not going to deliver all that they hope for and that just having a man who's witty and fun is not enough. There are moral qualities required in political leadership which really matter, and competence matters. Now, in America, it looks more plausible that that won't happen. They are still caught in this uh, caravan of folly, and that's very disturbing. Uh, Experience, I thought, would convince the majority of Americans that Trump cannot be a competent head of the executive. It looks, however, that such are the vagaries of the American system that he might still become the nominee, even though he has only, let's say, 35% of the Republican primary electorate. So I have to be an optimist, and my optimistic view is the financial crisis fades into the rear mirror. The anxiety that was associated with it disappears. We learn something from painful experience about the need for competence and honesty in senior political officials. And we go back to sanity. And in which case, my book will turn out to have been an unnecessary warning of a possibility that disappears. And nothing would make me happier. Let me end by asking you to look a bit further beyond the horizon of the next presidential election in the United States and the next general election here in the UK. Now, one of your intellectual heroes, Martin Karl Popper, wrote that, and I'm quoting, one of the oldest dreams of mankind is the dream of prophecy. 
the idea that we can know what the future has in store for us and that we can profit from such knowledge by adjusting our policy to it. Now, without asking you to make prophecies, how optimistic are you for the kind of world that your grandchildren, to whom the book is dedicated, will inherit? My response to Papa would be, we can think about possible alternatives, and we have the power of choice. So it doesn't require prophecy, it just requires a measure of analysis. If you look at where we are now in the world, it is pretty obvious that we confront some really big challenges, though we have also huge opportunities. And the big challenges are a fundamental transformation of the geopolitical order with the arrival of a very powerful non-Western, non-democratic country with which we will have ineluctably a long engagement. We have huge global environmental challenges. We have an economic and market system which is a strong tendency to instability. And right now, with immense amounts of debt, this is more obvious than usual. We have a shooting war with a nuclear power. We have profound dissatisfaction in very important elements within our societies in the West. And of course, a huge desire in most of the rest for better lives, which many of them are not achieving. The challenges are obvious if we are to secure prosperity, peace, and planet. Those are the aims. We need to manage our rivalries without war, manage our economies without breakdown, and manage the planet without destruction. And these are bigger demands than ever before. I hope we can do it, but it is only if we are aware of what's at stake that the world for my grandchildren that I hope for will actually be the world they inherit. Well, that simultaneously stirring and sobering outline of the challenges facing the species, Martin, almost brings us to the end of this episode and with it the end of the entire series. Now, at the beginning of episode one, you'll remember that we caught you on tape saying that you never listened to podcasts and you seemed somewhat sceptical about the whole idea of podcasting. I wonder whether the experience of these four episodes has changed your mind. Well, first, I enjoyed doing the podcast because I like talking and I like talking to people I like talking to. So the conversations were immensely enjoyable. I had no idea whether other people would be interested in listening to them, which I'm not very good at, but it's apparently quite a few people did, which is all to the good. And I'm absolutely sure that we have been discussing one of the great issues of our time for our societies. So I would say now, from my point of view, as a part of the production, as it were, side rather than the consumption side, it has been absolutely invaluable and a wonderful experience. And I hope very much that that's also proved true for the people who listen to it. Well, I'm sure I speak for everyone, including the fine people responsible for producing this series, Martin, when I say that the next time you have something big to say, please join us around this table and in front of a microphone, and we'll be happy to record another podcast. Martin Wolf, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. 
Well, that really is the end of this final episode of Saving Democratic Capitalism. It just remains for us to credit the people working behind the scenes, and I will leave it to Martin to do the honours. So this episode was produced by Lawrence Knight, Manuela Saragossa was the executive producer, and Breen Turner, the sound engineer. The FT's global head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.